God indeed loves the cheerful giver. And in our series, we have acknowledged that we have many opportunities to give back, not only in this local church, but beyond the church to the ends of the earth. Uh, we've acknowledged by the world standards that we here in this part of the Commonwealth of Virginia, we, we are rich. And while we may not feel rich or while we may have struggles financially and in other ways, uh, when we consider what we have and look at the way that many people in the world live, we indeed are rich. This morning I got up from a, a warm bed with a nice quilt and stepped onto nice carpet and got into a, a warm shower. Uh, I had soap and shampoo and indeed conditioner. And I sat in a, a nice room to have quiet time. I went down and retrieved a Sunday paper from my driveway and sat at the table and had cereal and juice and coffee and some fruit. And then I got into an, a, a reliable car and I drove on good roads with stoplights and came to a, a church with a paved parking lot and walked into a beautiful building that's climate controlled to worship God. And many, many people in this world do not have those luxuries. And we think oftentimes, I think oftentimes that those are just ordinary things that I expect. And that if nothing else comes out of this series, that my perspective will be changed. That I will look at the things that God has provided for me, that I will, that I will look at those things differently. And that by the rest of the world's standards, I'm rich, and that God will enable me to be a cheerful giver, and that I will steward the resources, time, about abilities, and talents, and treasures differently than perhaps people who are in the world. Today we're going to see how the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthian Christians to think this way, to think differently about the resources that God had given them, to be strategically generous, not to trust in riches, but to trust in God who richly provides. How many of you, don't raise your hand, just think, but how many of you know someone who's very generous or someone who has touched your life through their generosity? I think first of my wife's parents. They are some of the most generous people I have ever met. Melanie's dad, Roger, went to be with the Lord almost two years ago. And Margaret, her mom, still lives in the same rambling brick rancher that Melanie grew up in down outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Roger grew up in East Alabama, about six miles from where Auburn University is located. His mom and dad both worked in the cotton mills, and they lived in a small frame mill house there in the town. They hardly had anything. And I still remember going to that house when, I, when we were first married and eating the cornbread that Melanie's grandmother fixed 
in the black iron skillet. Asked what her recipe was. She said just a little of this and a little of that. We couldn't make it like she made it. And Melanie's mom grew up in Beckley, West Virginia. Her dad was a coal miner, and in the coal mine one day, he committed his life to Jesus Christ and surrendered to the call to ministry and would end up going to Southern Seminary for one year with his wife and two children to learn to be a pastor and then moved back to West Virginia where he started churches and did evangelistic revivals and did everything that he could to share the love of Jesus Christ with people. And there are churches uh, still today in that area that are uh, practicing churches, active churches, that he started. Well, Melanie's parents had these meager upbringings. I remember uh, Melanie's mom telling the time where Mr. Webb came over to their home. And while he was in their home, it was a small two-bedroom clapboard house with a iron stove in it for heat and he had to go to the restroom and he says I, I, I don't know where the restroom is and they said well it's out back because they did not have indoor plumbing it's that kind of upbringing that Melanie's parents had and yet they were some of the most generous people I ever met when they got married they committed themselves to tithing off of their gross income to the local church and they started saving, and they were able to put three children through college with no student loans, one of them through law school, the other through graduate school, and then paid for two weddings, two girls and a boy, and then, of course, part of their sons, and they have continued over the years to help all of their children and grandchildren. And they never had a whole lot, but they sure gave of what they had. When Melanie and I shared with our family that we were called to ministry and that we would be moving to Richmond back in 1995, uh, Melanie's dad came up to me the summer that we were moving and he said, how much do you owe on your car and how much is your student loan? And I was kind of taken by that and he insisted that he would pay my student loan off and my car off because he did not want his daughter and her husband to go to seminary in debt. And I'm forever grateful for that generosity, that grace gift that he gave. I did nothing to deserve it and yet was able to enter the seminary debt-free without that hanging over uh, my head, Melanie in my head. It was grace, plain and simple. And you can think of people who have extended grace to you over the years, and you didn't deserve it, and they're some of the most generous people that you can remember. That's the kind of person that I hope my daughter remembers when she grows up to talk about me when she's an adult. I hope that we have those kinds of stories. Grace, plain and simple. Grace is unmerited favor. We are saved by God's grace. We do nothing to deserve it. This is the context of the passage that we have today, grace giving. This past week at Charles Gibson's funeral, Rod Hale, who was mentored by Charles and who served on staff alongside Charles when Charles was a pastor years ago, said that grace is this, Charles' definition, it is that which makes God accept us in spite of ourselves. 
we are saved indeed by grace. And by grace we receive from God and through God's grace we give to others. Macedonia was a place north of Greece during the time the Apostle Paul ministered. And he's in the passage that we have today, he's using the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthian church. Because the Macedonians were people who didn't have much, but they gave in abundance out of what they did have. Macedonia was north of Greece. Some of the largest cities that uh, we hear about in Macedonia were Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica. In your Bible study, you probably remember that Lydia was the first Gentile convert to Christianity. She was from Macedonia, from the city of Philippi. So he's writing using the Macedonians as as an example or as an illustration because the Corinthians had started to take a collection to send to the Jerusalem church, the mother church. The Jerusalem Christians were really struggling and so the churches in Macedonia and in other places were gathering resources and then they would end up sending them with through Titus and some others then, and eventually would get back to the church in Jerusalem. This offering was one way that Paul sought to help Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians be united because the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem would be blessed through the predominantly Gentile Christians in Macedonia that would send those offerings. This would unite believers across social and cultural and racial and geographic boundaries. So there was power in this offering. And what I want to do is just look at chapter 8 as we see some context here and then uh, look at uh, how we can be generous and how we can apply that today. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, I'll start at verse 1 in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament where Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. There's that word grace, the grace that he's given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in their generosity. And if you'll pause there and you'll see the words severe trial and deep poverty. The word severe trial, severe is the Greek word philipsis. And it means a pressing together, affliction, pressure, tribulation, distress. Um, If you remember the very first Star Wars, well, for me, it was the first one in 1977. It's actually number four, but it was number one. Hope you've seen number seven. Do you remember the garbage compactor scene where they're all in the garbage, garbage compactor and the walls are closing in on them? And you're just wondering if they're going to make it. They do make it. Uh, That's what this word reminds me of. A pressing together, affliction, pressure, distress. And then trial is, uh, the Greek word that Paul uses here, is how a piece of metal is tested. And how they'll bend a piece of metal until it can't bend anymore. And they will know where the breaking point is. So this severe trial is what the Macedonian people had experienced in the economy and other economic and other conditions that, they, that existed around them. And deep poverty 
Uh, the word deep in the Greek is a word that means of the depths of the sea. One commentator uh, translates this word as hitting rock bottom. Some of you know what it means to hit rock bottom. And the word poverty in the Greek is the condition of a beggar being destitute or being in extreme poverty. So this is how Paul describes the Macedonians. And yet, in the midst of all of that, it says that they had overflowing joy. Have you ever met somebody who had hit rock bottom or that they didn't have hardly anything and yet they were some of the most joyful people that you ever met? And it made you look at what you have or what I have and really be thankful. I believe this is what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians as he describes the Macedonians. You see, the Macedonians, about 150 years before Jesus, were taken by the Romans as a Roman province. Uh, they were stripped of their um, occupations. Uh, they mined gold and silver, and those mines were shut down. And eventually, the Macedonians would predominantly survive on meager wages from agriculture. They would be the last people who would sign a pledge card to the church. They would be the last people you would expect to give to a building campaign. But yet Paul says these people had an abundance of joy or an overflowing joy. In spite of their impoverished condition, the Christians in this place gave and they were a joyful people. Their conditions did not hinder them from the desire and ability to give. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. You, you didn't have to provoke them or prompt them or push them. Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They insisted on giving. They pleaded with Paul and leaders for the privilege of sharing in the service. They wanted to be a part of this offering to Jerusalem. And that's just amazing to me. And then in verse 5, Paul writes, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first. Think about that. They, gave, they committed themselves first. Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, present yourself as living sacrifices and offering holy and pleasing to God. The Macedonians presented themselves first to God. They gave themselves as a living sacrifice first, and then everything else came out of that overflow. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. The tangible gifts that they gave to be sent back to Jerusalem came as a result of first giving themselves to God. So maybe that's a lesson for me and for all of us that before we think about giving of ourselves, we have to take a step back and ask if we have truly given ourselves to the Lord. I think that's something daily that we examine. Because God wants us, more than any of our stuff or our belongings or our time or our abilities, God wants us. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And then he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's what Jesus did. He gave of himself. He gave himself to God. And then if you look at chapter 8, verse 6 and 12, through 12, we'll see how Paul encourages the Christians in Corinthia and Corinth to follow the example the Macedonians had set. <clears throat> so we urge Titus, just as he had, heard, had earlier <clears throat> made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Bring it to completion, he says. And verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And then she's writing to the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And verse 10, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. Finish what you've started, people so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion according to your means. Have you ever started out the year pretty well and then start to wane? God is saying to us that he wants us to be steadfast in finishing that which we start. So sometimes in our giving or in our serving, uh, we make commitments that we can't keep. And I believe that God wants us to finish what we start. So perhaps we don't set the expectation level so high for ourselves. Perhaps we start somewhere that's manageable, where we can have some win-wins. And whether it's giving financially, or maybe it's serving in the church, or maybe it's um, being a generous person in other ways, that we do things that with, with God's help, where we um, can see some small victories, and then over a period of time, increase in those. And we'll see that God will honor that. That's what he's saying, I sense, to the Corinthians. And then verse 12, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. After this, Paul shares a few words about those who will take the offerings and make sure that the finances are accounted for appropriately. And then you see in the passage that Deanne read earlier how God loves a, a cheerful giver and how God gets the glory when people are generous in the name of Jesus Christ. So here is some application. How, uh, how can we live a generous life? How can you and I be people who have cheerful hearts, who give generously? I believe there's the how and then there's the where. Very briefly, how, if you're taking notes, Give strategically. Give strategically. Think and pray about how God wants you to, to direct your gifts and talents and abilities. Give strategically. 
Uh, one of my friends and I, we have lunch at Denny's every month. And we go to the same place and we see the same waiter. His name's Wayne. And we intentionally asked for Wayne and we intentionally prepare to give a very generous tip. We eat the cheapest thing on the menu and then we, would, we give him a very generous tip. And every other month, one of us gets the bill. We do that strategically. Maybe <clears throat> during the Christmas season, you'll strategically put change in your pocket so that when you go to Walmart, you can put something in the Salvation Army bucket as the bell ringer is ringing the bell. Strategically, I'm uh, prayerfully thinking about how I can be generous before I, I get in the car and I go there. Or maybe strategically you adopt or sponsor a child through Compassion or one of the other organizations where you can help a child in another part of the world. Or strategically being generous, strategically saying, I want to help my grandchildren in their college and I want to be generous toward their college fund. Or intentionally, the night before you come to worship, if you use envelopes and write checks, uh, filling that out and having it with your Bible when you come to church on Sunday morning, it's already ready. You're strategically thinking about giving. If you're doing it online, maybe you strategically set that as a regular recurring deposit from your checking account to the church. These are things that can be done strategically, and your heart is in that. Here's three strategic practices that may help us. One, priority giving. Priority giving, that's where we believe God comes first. Before I do anything else, God comes first. That's the practice that we have in our, in our household. God comes first. We do uh, without some things so that God comes first. Second, percentage giving. And this is the biblical understanding of tithing where we look at a 10% gift to the Lord off of the top and then he allows us to live on the other 90%. So there's priority giving God first. There's percentage giving where we look at a proportion of what we make goes to the Lord. And then progressive giving. Over a period of time we seek to increase that percentage so that it is greater. Some of us may not be there at the 10%. Some of us didn't grow up with that. For some of us, that's a foreign idea or concept. And as I shared some time ago that Dr. Jim Flaming, I'll never forget what he said when I was in seminary hearing him preach. He said, find your percentage and stick to it. Maybe it's 1% or 2% and you strategically and intentionally prioritize God in that percentage over a period of time and seek from year to year to increase that so that perhaps someday maybe you're above the tithe. These are some things that may help. And then not only the how, but the where. And I believe the where is the local church. We start with the local church because the local church is the hope of the world. The local church can do things that government organizations and others, nonprofits cannot do. The local church is the hope of the world, not the United Nations, not the Democrats or the Republicans, not our government, not Social Security, not our school systems, not even nonprofit agencies and organizations. The church can go places and do things that other organizations cannot do. The local church is indeed the hope of the world. We, we have the how and the where. And through this church, when you give, the, the, the monies are 
dispersed locally in the local church and in the community and to the ends of the earth. And there are amazing works that are done simply because you are faithful. And when you are faithful, God is faithful. And I firmly believe that. Tithing teaches us, here's a little application. Tithing teaches us to put God first. The Living Bible translation of Deuteronomy 14, 23. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God's, God first in your lives. It's, it, it teaches me, it, teach, it helps us teach our daughter to put God first. At home, Isabella has three containers uh, for her money. One of them is church for God. The other is savings. And the other is spending. And she divides her monies up and uh, gives appropriately. And then second, tithing increases our faith in God. It just does. We have to trust him. When we live on less, we have to trust that he's going to provide the rest. Malachi 3.10, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the gates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Tithing says that we live on 90% and it will go farther with God than 100% without. His grace is amazing. He desires that we be cheerful givers. And we're reminded what Paul writes to the Ephesians, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could possibly ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.